0: The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor travel guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello my friends and welcome to this extra special episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. Now, before we get into the subject of today's show, I just want to give a mention to my latest project. If you haven't noticed, I am now on Clubhouse, which is a new social media app. But the thing is about Clubhouse is it is all audio and it is all live. And I'm on there currently with three of my fellow bloggers and vloggers and podcasters. That's Philippa Brawl from British History Tours. Catherine Brooks from the Tudor Tracker and Katharina Marchant from Reading the Past. And together we have started the Tudor History Club alongside the History and Culture Club. And throughout the week, we are running rooms based on a particular theme A lot of it, I have to say, is around Tudor history, although not exclusively. And if you are a member of Clubhouse, then you can come on, join our rooms, hear us chatting live and even join in the conversation. Now, currently, Clubhouse is for iPhone users only, although be assured, I am told that there is a 90% chance that this will be now available to Android users by May, so not too long to wait. And you have to, at the moment, get onto Clubhouse via invite only. Now, if you are wanting to get an invite but haven't yet got your hands on that one, then do check out my social media channels, both my Facebook group and my Instagram channels, Where from time to time I get underway a feedback, invite feedback chain, a giveaway chain, and uh, you can join in and put in your request for an invite. So look out for that. And we are having loads of fun over Clubhouse, over on Clubhouse. It really is quite a unique platform, and the interactivity and the fact that we can chat live makes for so much fun. So I do hope to see you there if you are not already on. On the platform. Okay, with that said, I want to turn my attention to today's interview. And I had the pleasure recently of talking to two ladies, uh, and that is uh, Linda Collins and Siobhan Clark, who have recently written and are about to release a new book called King and Collector Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship. So I'll leave Linda and Siobhan to introduce the book for themselves. So let's go straight over and join in the conversation. So hello, Siobhan and Linda. Welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Hello, Sarah. Lovely to be with you today. Yes, hello and thank you for inviting us. Oh, you are most welcome. And it's going to be a real treat today because you two ladies have a new book out called King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship. Now, I love art, a royal art, royal collections, So I think this is going to be a smorgasbord of delight for us to enjoy today. And I'm looking forward to hearing all about the book and your research and your conclusions. And that's what we're here to do today. So maybe I could just kick off before we get into the book to allow you to introduce yourself for those people who maybe don't know you. So maybe, Linda, you want to go first. Fine. Well, I'm Linda Collins and
1: working with Vaughan, this is the second book we've done together. And we have another one in the pipeline as well. Um, I worked for the royal palaces for over twenty years, so very close to all the things we're talking about, and I loved every minute of it. So it's become more of a, a passion than than a job,
0: which is fantastic. Well, it sounds lovely, Siobhan, What about what about you? What's your background? So, yeah, my name is Siobhan Clark. I've worked for
2: historic royal palaces for twenty years, so like Linda, twenty years experience. And um, uh, this uh, this book is actually my third book. My first one was A Tudor Christmas, written with Alison Weir. So this is my second book with Linda. And as Linda explained, we're now working on the third. And we both feel that it the partnership works really well for us because um, Linda's an art historian. Um, and, an, and an accredited lecturer with the Arts Society. So she brings a wealth of experience on the arts side, um, whereas I'm, I focus on the history. So we find that together um, it works and we enjoy working as a partnership.
3: Mm-hmm. So-
0: what a perfect blend that is. And I, having worked in a writing partnership myself with Natalie Gruniger, I know what a joy it is when you find that perfect sweet spot of complementarity. And it really... Because writing can be a lonely business when you're on your own, can't it? So what a wonderful thing for you both to do. So let's talk about the book. So as I say, it's, it's called King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship, uh, published by the History Press. So... um. How did this, the inspiration for this book come about? Why did you write it?
1: Well, I would say we started to write it because the book we did last time was principally history. And I'm an art historian. I love the art side. And we suddenly looked through books that were available. And there's very few that cover the art and the history together. So we thought this is a, a partnership made in history here. I can spend my time looking at wonderful paintings and then Shirun can spend her time weaving the history around the time as well. So we both sort of fell into it as such and it's worked incredibly well because we're both doing what we love.
0: I was... Um... I was reading a little bit about about your book. And I think one of the things and this may be um, part of the answer to the question I'm going to ask next, which is really what it's what it's all about. But I was interested when I was reading about the book, the blurb was saying about how Henry used art was not necessarily for the sake of art in itself. It was for storytelling. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk us a little bit around that, you know, what what people can expect from the book, what As a broad brushstroke, what's the book going to tell us about? So it it is a
2: book about art, but it's about the stories within and around each artwork. And, And I think that's very apt because that's what interested Henry. He wasn't interested in art for art's sake. He was interested in storytelling and using art to push forward his political agenda and his pursuit of glory and magnificence. And it's also all taking part in the early 16th century, which is a really pivotal moment in the history of English art, where you see all this influence coming in from the Renaissance and more um, continental artists coming over. And Linda will be able to explain a bit more about that. But I I think it's a really interesting time uh, when Henry starts collecting. Um, We're also conscious that perhaps a lot of people, perhaps you know henry's famous for so many things but he's not particularly famous as an art collector and so people might not be aware that he was a great patron um we when when i show people around at hampton court palace i'm you know i'm talking about the paintings then so again that goes back to what we were saying earlier in that that's one of the reasons why i suppose we we wanted to do the book we're both used to talking about the stories within within paintings and trying to relate that to the visitor and using art as a gateway to the history so it it just makes sense really to um to 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 weave a book around what we've been doing and to use art to tell the story of Henry's
0: life because storytelling was very important to the king i'm not an art connoisseur but i do appreciate looking at beautiful paintings but fact that these paintings tell a story of Henry and Henry's life and reign I think makes it even more interesting and I think one of the things was we had a bit of a pre-chat before we got together to think about how, what's the best way to unpack this and talk about it and yeah. and since we're talking about how Henry used art through his life I think we thought a really good way to do that would be actually to look at his life from his childhood through to the end of his life and maybe pick up some of the examples that you looked at and you researched to highlight some of the highlights and lowlights (laughs) of, of this most interesting of monarchs so perhaps we could dive in at the beginning and maybe we could explore three or four different uh artworks and maybe look at one from his childhood to begin with which one would you pull out? Well, I would certainly pull out The Bust of a Young Boy by Guido
1: Manzoni.' Been in the Royal Collection since 1498. And it's been described as various people. It's been described as a Chinese boy, a laughing girl, a German dwarf, where I have no idea where that came from, or <laughs> <laughs> Henry VIII as a seven-year-old boy. And Guido Manzoni is from Modena, which, of course, was ruled by the Esty family, these wonderful patrons of art. First commission was for them, but his major work is for a church of the Jesu in Ferrara, where he has compiled, produced an art that is made from terracotta of life-size figures and painted coloured. Now, can you imagine going into the church at this time in the 15th century and seeing this group of life-size, coloured people looking at you? And that's the main reason why this bust has been attributed to Manzoni because of his work beforehand. Um, it's a fabulous piece and the reason I like it's numerous, but the, the boy is smiling and he, that's unusual in art because artists don't like painting smiling places. The smile can turn into a grimace so quickly that um, it's not generally successful, but this boy is smiling. He also has ear holes and nostrils for a reason, because this this, um, terracotta was only five mil thick. And when it was put into the kiln, it could have easily smudged. It had to be very carefully baked. Well, the, the mouth and the nostrils and the ear holes so when the steam came out, <laughs> a <laughs> seven year old boy literally would have had steam coming from his ears and nose and mouth in order to protect this um, so we don't know who it is. there's a few examples, but i I will wait for you to carry on with that if you want to know more. Yeah, I got that's five mils thick the the actual ceramic yes, I know can you imagine doing this? And the sad thing is that it was, he doesn't have a great name, like Michelangelo, for example, um, because probably of the terracotta. Terracotta was considered provincial. It was less important than marble or stone, and it easily disintegrated. So even though these works, I think, are fantastic, I don't believe he got the credit as a sculptor that he should have done because of the material he specialized in
0: interesting but it's a charming little piece isn't it sort of really chuckling a little boy chuckling away but why why, oh, do, we why do we think it's henry how, how did the artist come over here what was he doing here and what what's the evidence for it well being henry as a young yeah
1: there, i mean there isn't There is no evidence for it being Henry VIII, no evidence at all. But putting information together, Manzoni was working for Charles VIII in France and he designed a tomb for Henry VII. Now, we don't know, and this is my surmising, but he also sent the plans over to England for this tomb. Now, Torrigiano won the commission, as we, we know, but maybe that bust came over with the plans for the two as an example to get work, to show the style of his work. I started by saying, well, if it's not Henry VIII, who could it be? Because that seemed a logical way to approach it. Well, we know it wouldn't be Arthur because Arthur was 12 by then. He was also thinner, more finely boned um, than his younger brother. The children of Charles VIII died early before seven, so they're out. It could have been someone from the Estes family, but then you would think, why would Anzoni give a bust of a child of the Estes family to Henry VIII in England? It, it just doesn't ring true. So I like to think that it is Henry
0: VIII. Yeah. So it definitely was a gift to Henry Seventh. Do we know that much?
1: No. We don't know that at all. All we know is that it's been in the Royal Collection from 1498. It's not actually mentioned by anybody until much later in the 17th century. So, no, it's a mystery. But that is part of its charm, isn't it? Mm. Is it Henry VIII? Could
0: it be Henry VIII? And if it's not, who is it? Yeah, and where is that bust now? Where can you go and see it? Can you go and see it? Or is it behind locked no. door, part of the Royal Collection?
1: It's not behind locked doors, and I'm sure if you specifically wanted to see it for a very good reason, you may well be able to see it, but it comes out for exhibitions. I mean, you can imagine, as we said, five mil thick. That's pretty thin. It's pretty delicate. It has had work on it. There's been paint to remove from it in 1985, so it is in as good a condition as it could possibly be, but it's not always on show. And it would not be on show in the same place anyway, the same palace. But for exhibitions, I would suggest keep an eye out.
0: Yes. When was the
1: last time it was on public display? Gosh, that's a good question, because I saw it on the public display and I can't for the life of me think when it was. I have a feeling it was in the 90, early 90s, um, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it since, although it may well have been in an exhibition
0: that I don't know about well that's something as you say to keep an eye open for because it sounds like if it was in the 90s it's due for another outing anytime soon absolutely <laughs> and, and if it is henry it it fits in
2: with the image that we have of henry as a child you know that very famous description from um elton palace when henry was nine years old and Thomas Moore and Erasmus um, go to the yes. Nursery and visit the children, and you get this impression of this very confident, actually quite cheeky, little little child who later sends a note to Erasmus um, asking for something from his pen um, and puts the, uh, the great uh, humanist in a slightly embarrassing uh, position. Uh, so it, it, it would be wonderful if, if it actually is Henry, and it fits our, our, with our image of him. Mmm, it does.
0: we've been talking about henry VIII as a little boy and he wasn't at that stage of course a patron or a collector of the arts but the boy became a man and we want to fast forward along his timeline to go to the point where henry is now a reigning monarch but where Mm. are we stopping now in his timeline and which piece of art are we going to explore all right so think
2: First of all, let's let's just make the point that um, Henry becomes king. He's he's interested in art right from the beginning. Um, he uh, commissions Torrigiano to come over, a great Italian artist, to come over and prepare a tomb for his parents, Henry the Seventh and Elizabeth of York. And and he's very interested in getting artists from Europe to come to come to England. Um, but where we're actually going to stop next is 1520. Henry becomes king in 1509. So we're moving forward 11 years. Um, He's a young man um, in the prime of life, uh, a great uh, golden Renaissance prince who grew up with very strong ideas about chivalry. Um, His personal hero was Henry V, and of course he dreamed of one day ruling France. Uh, He has two great rivals, um, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, And François Premier, the the French king, both much more powerful than Henry, uh, both young, both Renaissance princes. There's a lot of rivalry between the three of them. Um, Henry has the advantage only in one thing, and that is that he's being wooed by both sides. Otherwise, he doesn't have any advantages. England Mm -hmm. is very much a subsidiary power at the time. So uh, by around about 1518, uh, Cardinal Wolsey, Henry's right-hand man, is actually promoting diplomacy rather than warfare and trying to arrange pacts between these three uh, great European princes. And the Field of the Cloth of Gold is essentially a summit meeting or political conference between Henry and the French king. And it takes place in 1520, in France. Um, England still has territory in France at the time, we still have Calais. So the place chosen for this meeting is Guines uh, near Calais. And what it means is that Henry will be able to arrive with his entourage, which was in the region of 6,000 people, ranging from nobility through gentry, servants, heralds, minstrels, A whole, you know, all kinds of staff accompany the king. And it means that they can come over and immediately set up their base in Calais and bring with them everything that they're going to need when they come to France. So they won't have to ask the French for anything. So um, it's a huge um, administrative operation, which is handled extremely well by the brilliant uh, Wolsey. So that's something that he's very good at, uh, putting together this operation. Mm. (laughs) And the the, the two kings, uh, Francois also brings um, an entourage of around 6,000. And the two kings arrive with their entourage in June 1520. It's it's roughly about two weeks, this this summit meeting. And what I love about the, um, the painting is there's just so much going on. And and one of the most significant things that, in fact, that probably stands out more than anything else is the temporary royal palace in the painting. So it's called the Field of the Cloth of Gold because the idea was that you would look down from the hills above and you would see um, a whole area, a valley of gold uh, from the... the tapestries and fabrics and expensive materials uh, laid out across the tents so most people there are staying in tents but not henry the he doesn't even for two weeks he's not going to stay in a tent and so he builds this amazing palace and we can see it so clearly and um, with um, stone foundations and then they used wood, uh, timber, and canvas to, to construct this amazing building, which even had stained glass windows. It had real windows, a chapel inside, and they brought over tapestries and furnishings, and um, all you know the highest uh, quality uh, to decorate the inside of the palace so it's it's just so typical of henry that you know everything has to be done in style and all the entourage that he's brought with him they're all going to be entertained and fed to the very highest level so i mentioned that they brought everything with them and um, that would include glassware and plate and um, all the food that they're going to uh, need including um live livestock and and vast quantities of fish and um, the wine the beer and even and of course bread is fundamental and they even constructed their own bread oven and brought equipment to brew their own ale because French the French both the French bread and ale was considered of inferior quality and as I mentioned they wouldn't want to ask the French anyway they they, they want to be self-sufficient oh. so it, it's a huge undertaking, and we can see it all happening in this painting. We can see the palace, we can see the brick oven uh, where they're baking the bread. We can see an amazing wine, wine fountain that ran with wine constantly, and the little figures, who, uh, the little, these little Tudor people who have been helping themselves to the wine, getting drunk, uh, falling asleep, being sick, quarrelling. Um, it, it's fascinating. And then at the top right of the painting, we can see the tilt yard where the jousting takes place. We've got Henry and Francois at top centre, either embracing or quite possibly wrestling because they they did have a wrestling match at the time. So this painting is just full of little little stories. We can see Henry arriving with his entourage, the cardinal riding beside him. And this man is... um, the cardinal is incredibly wealthy and powerful and yet he chooses to ride on a donkey Um, I think it's a donkey or, or is it a donkey Linda or a mule I'm not sure but anyway he's I've not always
1: on, said donkey but donkey. you know who knows
2: he's not on a horse and he's also not wearing his red cardinal robes so he's bes- decided to present himself as a fairly humble uh, churchman and not for the wealthy um, statesman and powerful statesman that he really is. Um, and we can actually identify some of the people in the entourage as well. So for example, um, Henry's brother-in-law, uh, Brandon, we can, we can see him um, riding behind the, the king, and he actually looks a lot like Henry, which apparently yeah. he did in real life. But interestingly, the, the figure of Henry um, is not the way Henry looked in 1520. The painting was done 20 years later, so we think it dates from around 1540, not 1520. And the Henry that we see in this painting is based on the older Henry. So Holbein's image from 1537 has been replicated here. Also, there's a very intriguing um, thing about this painting, the fact that Henry's head has been cut out, a little circle
0: around the king's head. You can see that if you get really up close and personal with the painting, can't you? You can see that little... it? what's going on there then? Well, we don't know
2: for sure. There's just different theories. So one theory is that um, during the Commonwealth, um, in the midst of the English Civil War, after the execution of Charles I in 1649, they were obviously selling off the vast amount of the royal collection and um one theory is that the king's head may have been removed to stop the painting being sold because it wouldn't you know it just wouldn't fetch the same value with that piece missing and there's another theory that it was removed by spanish envoys who'd come to the court of james the first in the early 1600s and that they'd apparently they'd The the idea is that they'd quarrelled with the king And and they did this uh, because they were aggrieved So I don't really know I think if I had to choose I'd probably go for the the theory That maybe it was to stop the painting being sold Mm. Because clearly somebody kept it safe And then the head was returned
3: Unless
0: it's a different head I I was going to say Do we know if it's the original? Has anybody analysed that? No, there is work going on at the moment
1: because I think there's a change to it being a Netherlandish artist, so I I think we have to wait for that one. Ooh, so it's
0: well, all an ongoing. <laughs> we like that a little something to look forward yes. to. Yes, and it's in art. I'd love to ask a couple of questions actually about. Yes. Uh, first of all. As you point out, it was painted in the 1540s, so towards the end of Henry's reign. Now, just very recently, I was in a chat room on Clubhouse, which is a social media platform, and we were talking about this painting and somebody said, why was it painted then? We didn't know, we were all just speculating. Do we know why? Did Henry have a set of portraits commissioned towards the end of his life that might have been looking back on his highlights? Do we know why then? particularly, and not at the time, for example, because the event was famous in its own lifetime, wasn't it? So um, any, any theories or thoughts on that?
1: Not, not from me. I don't know if Siobhan has. I, the fact that there's 20 years in between, the only thing I can think of is that we, didn't, we don't know for sure that Henry commissioned this. And there was a remarkable number of accounts of the event which were so detailed that it was possible to put together the painting twenty years later, and know that you're pretty well correct in what you're doing. I don't know. And um, one thing else we don't know is: are there other were there other copies? And that's something that's not been. If they're lost, we wouldn't know of them. We lost so many pictures during that time. During mm-hmm. the, just simply, it was five hundred years ago. So. All we can go on is what we've got. So mm. I have no theory as to why it would have been painted 10 years later. And I don't know if Siobhan feels it would have bolstered something in Henry's life. It would have made him look more important. It would have brought back his youth. And that is certainly a, a, a possible. What do you think, Siobhan? Um, is it to do with the fact that he was... No,
2: well, that wouldn't make sense. I'm just thinking of him being at war again with France, but this is a painting about peace. I'm afraid I don't really know. Um, but then, as Linda said, we don't even know that it was Henry who commissioned it. Um, and all the other thing we don't know is maybe he did have similar paintings um, after the event in 1520 that have since been lost. You know, maybe it wasn't.
3: Absolutely. Maybe
2: it didn't take 20 years for it to be commemorated in paint. Um because it, it was, could have been a copy of a
0: lost original for example
2: yeah 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 yeah
0: exactly mm, good so. thought interesting thought yeah absolutely and I'm really glad you um highlighted the fact that the Henry that appears on mm. the painting is an older Henry so it, mm. it is it is in line with the period of time it was actually painted I hadn't really I can I can picture the figure but I hadn't really kind of put Thought about the fact. Oh, yeah, that is that is the Holbein Henry, isn't it? It's not the young Henry, um, the young slim, handsome, handsomest prince of Christendom, Henry.
2: And also, if you if you look at the 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 painting that goes with it is the embarkation from Dover, which we also have at Hampton Court, um, and I'm sure that will be part of the exhibition. And that shows the ships leaving Dover, and Henry appears on one of the ships, his his flagship, the Henry Grassadieu. Um, and the figure—you have to look really closely to, to see Henry, but he is there, standing on the ship, and he's sta- even standing in the Holbein pose on, on the he ship. Is, he is. It's yeah. unmistakable, isn't it?
0: And um, those those two paintings were painted at the around the same time. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yeah, interesting. Interesting. And I love also one just other thing that I think if you go and see it that you really notice is that Henry is picked out in gold. He kind of shines in that picture in the entourage. So it's like there's a spotlight coming down on him and you can't miss who he is. But what a fascinating painting that is. And as you point out, Siobhan, both of those paintings you've mentioned, the Field of Cloth of Gold and the uh, Embarkation at Dover, are at Hampton Court Palace and should be in the exhibition, hopefully COVID-allowing uh soon very soon I understand yes we're hoping that it will open in May and run until I think it's
2: September so there's the whole summer if people want to come to you know they've got the whole summer to uh, to come and visit
3: great um, and
2: and finally Linda mentioned about the little um boy with um smoke coming out of his nose and ears One of the fun things about this painting, just to finish off, is the the creature that we can see flying through the sky, which a lot of people think is a a dragon, you know, for the Welsh dragon of the Tudors, but it could also be a salamander for the French, or maybe a hybrid of of both. And it was um, pulled along by a carriage so that it seemed like it was flying through the air. It's, It's actually a kite of this mythical beast being pulled along, and they had fireworks lit inside it to make its eyes glow, <laughs> and, and in order for smoke to hiss from its mouth. So it must have been quite an event, and that that was done right at the end of the Field of the Cloth of Gold. And then the final thing was that um, Wolsey, Wolsey um, said a mass, the meeting closed with a mass, uh, Wolsey proclaimed a general indulgence, thereby forgiving everyone their sins. And then they come away from this glorious, um, magnificent event, um, hopefully to have achieved lasting peace. But of course, it doesn't, it doesn't work out like that. They're at war again within two years.
0: And it does make me laugh when you say Woolsey absolving everybody for their sins. And after the riotous party that's shown by that wine fountain, it was probably much needed. Uh, so that's wonderful. Thanks so much, Siobhan, for bringing that painting to life. Any further, If you enjoy these podcasts, did you know that you can support my work by becoming a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month? A link to find out more about this programme and the different levels of sponsorship available is included in the description associated with this podcast. And while I can't thank you in person, here's a big mwah to say a massive thank you from me. So... Now it's back to the show. So let's move forward in Henry's life. He's now a mature, well-established king. And where are we going next in terms of the art that we're going to explore?
1: Well, I think one of my favourites are the tapestries. And these were commissioned around 1514, 99.9% for Henry VIII, but without documents of course I'm a very skeptical art historian Um, but the time would fill in well for 1540 so these tapestries were made telling the story of Abraham because Henry is broken from the throne he sees himself as a new Abraham a new prophet and when Abraham was commanded by God to take his son Isaac to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him this is the scene in one of the tapestries Why do I like it? Well, example of wealth, certainly, because in Henry's time, a rich individual would probably have around 50 tapestries in his collection. The richest, maybe 100. Cardinal Wolsey, 600. And when Henry VIII died, (laughs) 2,450. In his collection, if you laid them end to end, it's estimated that they would have run a full colour story for four miles. That's amazing. And this is when you when you imagine also that tapestries were more prized than paintings. And the other reason I like them is they took a long time to weave. And the actual tapestries, these tapestries, possibly around eighteen months, maybe a little bit less. An experienced weaver would weave one square metre of coarse woolen fabric in a month, or half a square metre of fine tapestry containing silk in a month. So these are gonna take, as I say, about 18 months. But then you have to think, we've got to get the wool, we've got to get the silk, we've got to set up the looms, we've got to roll them, package them and deliver them, again, which takes time. And the thing I like is that you needed patience. And do you think they were ordered by Henry in 15, around fifteen forty, possibly to make sure that his son, born in fifteen thirty seven, survived infancy, because he would use this as, and um, he believed he was the prophet leading the English people in the same way as Abraham. He needed the son to complete the story, so probably not commissioned until then to make sure that the baby survived. But then he had to wait. And this is what I find amusing. So ordered around 1540. 1540, he married Anna Cleve. He was married to Anna Cleve. Six months later, he was divorced. He married Catherine Catherine Howard. 18 months later, he ordered her execution. He married Catherine Parr at Hampton Court in 1543. The tapestries had still not arrived. Now, I think this is wonderful because they arrived... sorry 1543 44 but then three or four years later he's dead so he was only able to enjoy them for that really short period of time Mm -hmm. so it takes a lot of patience to order tapestries like that
0: it certainly does. It may, it puts our modern day issues with ordering. I've got a, a sofa on order at the moment and they told me it would be three months and that seems like forever. So goodness knows, that's really funny.
1: <laughs> exactly. All that happened in his life while these were being woven. Um, yeah, no, no Tudor Amazon in those days, unfortunately. <laughs> but they are incredible works of art and I love them. Another reason I find amusing in the tapestries is that we have to remember that these are a set of tapestries ordered for the King of England. there were other copies I believe made from the same cartoons, but these are probably the the most valuable and expensive tapestries made in the campmpaer workshop. so you set your loom up you have between five and six men along the bottom of the tapestry weaving it for a period of probably around 18 months, maybe a bit less. The most important tapestry is the sacrifice. And this is because people would have known, it would have been a conversation piece, but but also for other reasons, things like the baptistry doors in Florence, where people often mark the beginning of the Renaissance. The scene given to the artists competing for the door commission um, was that scene, the sacrifice. So it would have been a very known and conversational piece so important the weavers were paid according to their skill and one thing i should say also that somebody asked me once what was it five weavers or six weavers on each tapestry he said well if you think about it logically they have to pass all this between themselves the threads between themselves depending on the length of their arms there's no (laughs) logical way to think about it if you had short-armed men you probably needed another one and but if you look at the top of that sacrifice tapestry there is a cartouche and it's written in Latin the story of the uh, tapestry itself but on the bottom line of that is a mistake an error it's not woven into the tapestry it's painted on a piece of cloth it looks like and it's painted on so somebody at some time What other solution is there that they made a mistake? Gosh, this poor man possibly never worked again. The most important set of tapestries for Henry VIII is weaving the most important tapestry of the set. And there we find this error, which I just find,
0: again, it's so human. I love it. And (laughs) those tapestries are hanging at Hampton Court today.
3: They are. They so you can go and to... see
0: that mistake. Where can you go and stop yes. it? Just for those people who like something, a little bit of a, a Tudor challenge, where would they go to see that?
1: Well, go into the Great Hall, take some uh, binoculars with you because it's at the top of the tapestry and they are 26 foot by 16. So you'll need to look up. You'll see a figure of a lion with its paws over the top of the cartouche and under that is the writing. So... I mean, I must say that we don't know this was a mistake. So anyone with any knowledge about it, I'd love to hear from them
0: as to what else it could have been. And um, But it certainly looks that way. Yeah, that's so funny. But we don't know what the mistake was. We just know it's been kind of painted over. So there is the assumption that there was a mistake beneath it. Is that right?
1: Yes, That mm. that is my interpretation <laughs> of it. It's the only... Um, it's the only solution I can think of as to why that would happen but it's because it's human isn't it Hmm. it's this is what we love in art we love the fact that I had a wonderful history teacher at school who always said always remember in any historical situation these are people like us and this is so true yes we do make mistakes (laughs) we did say the doorbell might ring or this might happen And it happened in Henry VIII's time. And it's
0: those little examples that I really love, the humanity of it all. And have those tapestries hung at Hampton Court since they have been commissioned? Is there that sense of continuity? Or do we know if they were taken around, moved around? Because obviously the royal household moved, so I guess they must have moved.
1: Yes, they would have moved because they were so easy to roll and you could carry them quite easily. And because they were warm and because they were prestigious. You know, you could put a painting up, but it's not going to keep you warm on a February night. So tapestries would have travelled around, yes. But we've got
2: examples. We know that the Abrahams were hanging in Westminster Abbey for the coronation of Elizabeth I. And they hung again in Westminster Abbey for uh, James II, you know, um, 100 years later. Um, So they were certainly prestigious, you know, that they wanted to have them at coronations, Mm-hmm. But I but I think that um, they were probably only moved for really, really special occasions like that. As far as we know, Hampton Court has always been their home.
1: Yes, and they're heavy as well. They're not easy to take That's around, right. easier yes. than paintings yes. maybe. But I've always been told that one square metre of tapestry, because of the gold and silver in it, and the wool and silk that they're made of, weighs 10 kilos. So these are 26 foot by 15. I did have a, a wonderful maths teacher who I was taking out once who came up with the figure of around a tonne. <laughs> so I don't know if that's right or not because maths is my weak subject. Um, but they're certainly heavy. Yeah, 10 yeah. Per square meter.
0: Yeah, but clearly they were the most prized to have ended up to be chosen to go into Westminster Abbey for two coronations. They were the best yes. set absolutely lovely okay yeah. so that thank you so much for that and of course I love the fact that you can still go to Hampton Court and you can still stand in front of them and I you know. can base upon them and and that is a miracle and I just adore that fact
1: the biggest but, thing I think to invite your um, listeners to remember is that we have different words for tapestries then and now these tapestries were woven Not sewn as we would consider maybe a tapestry today, and they're woven between eighteen and twenty-one warps to the inch. So that weaver, and they were all male weavers from what we can understand, and and paid according to their skill as well. The one who, the man who wove the sky, was paid a lot less than the man who wove the faces. Um, But it would take that weaver; he'd have to weave through eighteen to twenty-one strings of that loom to produce one inch. Of that tapestry, and it was an international. Now we're talking about Europe and things. It was a it was a European adventure because the best wool came from England. So our sheep would have provided the wool that was then sent over, possibly or Spain the best wool. The mm. silk came from Venice or Cyprus, and the silk came from Italy or Spain. So this is a European adventure, and. and yeah, they were, they were expensive. They would have cost at least £1,500, yes. about the same as a battleship, a fully fitted battleship.
0: Well, when you describe where the raw materials are coming from and the amount of intensive labour, it's not surprising that they, that they cost as much as they did. But um, No.
1: Fantastic. And they, were sold. they weren't sold. That's the big thing. During the Civil War, mm-hmm. they were not sold. Cardinal Mazarin wanted to buy them, um, but they decided that they were to be kept. And they remained, of course, in the Royal Collection up to today because of that. They didn't go abroad like many other works during the Civil War.
3: Yeah.
1: So oh, wow. uh, yes, yeah,
0: sorry, a bit um, perhaps over enthusiastic there, but they are wonderful. <laughs> there's, well, there's a wonderful amount of detail in that, and as I say, you can stand in front of those tapestries yeah. for ages to appreciate them. So I heartily urge people, if they haven't, to make a beeline for Hampton Court. I can't imagine there are many people who, if they haven't been to England, haven't been to Hampton Court, If they love the Judas. But look out at those tapestries. Okay, so let's go to our final kind of phase in henry's life this is henry the aging king mm. and and what are you going to tell us about siobhan regard with regards to that period of his life
2: so we're moving on quite swiftly now to um 1545 and he's actually only got two years to live And in the later artworks, we start to see insecurities coming through, which is very evident in the Whitehall mural. And also, to some extent, in the painting I'm going to talk about, and this is the family painting, the family of Henry VIII, uh, probably actually the most important painting at Hampton Court Palace, Uh, Because we know that this was commissioned by Henry. We know that he would have stood in front of it and looked at this painting. The king had green and white curtains covering the painting. Um, That's very usual. And then he would just pull on a cord and the curtains would open and revealing the painting when he wanted to look at it. And what it's showing us is the, the dynasty, it's showing us Henry's family. And, and it is in some ways revealing an insecurity because Henry actually wasn't that successful um, in producing heirs, um, less successful than his father, Henry VII, um, to such an extent that he's now in 15, or by 1545, when the painting is commissioned. He's even uh, put his two illegitimate daughters back into the succession. So the third act of succession was passed in 1543, and it gives Henry the the right, Parliament give Henry the right, to name his successors. Um, So obviously it's going to be Edward, his son, his legitimate son with Jane Seymour, but he's decided to put his daughters back into the line even though they're both illegitimate. So Mary, his daughter by Catherine of Aragon, and Elizabeth, uh, his daughter by Anne Boleyn. And that's what this painting is telling us. It's set out like a triptych um, in three sections. So in a triptych, you would normally have the holy family in the centre of the painting, and then to to the left and to the right, to the wings, you might see saints and angels. And that's how this is set out. In the centre, we have Henry seated with Jane Seymour, the mother of his son, and also the mother of the Tudor dynasty, and his son Edward standing beside his father. This, we've got this holy family in the very centre. And then the two girls, the the illegitimate daughters, we see them in the wings, the Lady Mary on the left and the Lady Elizabeth on the right. And they're, they're relegated to the wings of the painting with fools or jesters whom we can see uh, in the background through the through the archways of this vestibule and the girls are even separated off by stone pillars very very elaborate gilded stone pillars so it's very clear that they're not as important as the people in the center they're outside the sphere of legitimacy but remarkably um, they're back in the line of succession so it's an incredible painting It's it's giving us Some um, insight into Henry's state of mind, his his insecurity about the dynasty, his need to try and reinforce the idea of a stable family with plenty of of heirs, which, which of course, he didn't really have. Um, And um, just um, just emphasising the the magnificence of, of this dynasty, it shows us the importance of James Seymour the the mother of his only son of course at the time uh, 1545 of course he's very much married to catherine parr at this time but no one would think it strange that jane is shown there seated beside the king although she actually died in october 1537. and um, the little boy edward doesn't really look like edward he's plumper he's obviously padded it's possible that his skin tone has faded and it may have looked a bit rosier in real life. None of the, um, the faces really look like the characters they're, they're intended to convey, but that's not what's important here. It's, it's the symbolism, it's what they represent. The other thing to consider is that Holbein had died in 1543. Now, just think for a moment if Holbein hadn't died. Mm. you know, it, We don't know, he may have died of plague, we're not sure, mm. but um, if if holbein had lived and completed this work what amazing thing we'd be we'd be looking at so as it is um, we don't know who painted it maybe an english artist not in any way of the same with the same skill as holbein And it's thought that the girls were sketched by by the artist, but the family definitely did not get together to to pose for this. They've all been sketched individually. Um, The setting is a vestibule at Whitehall Palace, so it's giving us um, uh, a glimpse inside a palace. We've got the colour, the the luxury, the, the textiles, Uh, The tiling on the floor, the Tudor roses in the ceiling. It's showing us the, the magnificence of an interior of a Tudor palace. It's showing us a glimpse of the gardens through the archway. So, so much detail here, so much information, but it's not showing us what these people actually looked like. Jane is based on a Holbein painting of Jane, a very famous one that now hangs in Vienna. Henry's based on, again, on Holbein's famous image. It certainly doesn't look like the king in 1545. We're being shown shapely legs with no sign of bandages or abscesses on his legs. Um, he's, he's slim, he's, we're being shown a slim down version of Henry. He would have been massive by this time and could actually hardly walk so it's not a true representation now coming to the girls um, they look quite similar except that mary is is shown as taller she was older at the time she's about i think about 29 and elizabeth is only 13 so so elizabeth is smaller and the gowns are very similar they're, obviously they're wearing rich clothing again this is showing us magnificence it's important and then there's a secret in this in this painting because if you look, if you've got good eyesight and you look really carefully, Elizabeth is wearing something rather intriguing around her neck. And in this, the two figures differ because Mary is clearly wearing a cross, but Elizabeth, on very close observation, we can see that she's wearing the letter A. Now, Anne Boleyn had an A as well as a B, so she's very famous for the B necklace, but she did also have an A, which was inherited by her daughter. But the key question here is, did Elizabeth wear that A in the sketch? As some historians would say, Tracy Borman thinks that Elizabeth wore it, but that she very boldly, you know, put that that necklace on uh, to commemorate her mother. So was she being brave in wearing the necklace? was Henry um, okay about it because it identifies her as her mother's daughter or did he just not notice? Hmm. My own feeling is that that A was added later when Elizabeth was Queen because we know that the painting was hanging in the presence chamber at Whitehall in the reign of Elizabeth and to me it would make sense that the A, which Elizabeth certainly owned, that the A was added in her reign I, th- I don't think linda agrees with me on this do you um but you can you can say what you think but it's no
1: no, it... no, no. i have no thoughts you no oh. you you carry on with that one but tracy thinks
2: she wore it so you know there's different theories but it it's fascinating that she she's she
0: is wearing this a necklace yes it's um, always yeah. one of the things that's intriguing um i i wasn't actually sure definitively whether Anne Boleyn had the A, and and Elizabeth had inherited it. Where do we? Where is the evidence for that? Is it? Is it in some letter? Is it in some inventory associated with Anne Boleyn? Do we know? Oh, it must be listed in the in the inventories
2: in in Elizabeth, because Elizabeth um inherited some. Um, I think it's some um, virginals from Anne as well. The virginals, mm. which are in the V&A. Yes, so it's right. just from possessions from Elizabeth's own inventories. There are certain possessions that she would have received from her mother
0: and it's wonderful as you say again you can go and stand there you can go and see that a necklace around Elizabeth's neck so you know for those of you who haven't been that's something to go and specifically look out for but I think that's it's that one of those very rare connections that we see Elizabeth referencing her mother and it very very rarely happens so it's just amazing to see it there captured in that painting I always feel
2: Yeah, and also I think what I'd like to tell visitors when they look at this painting is, you know, obviously it's all about the dynasty, and Henry's hand is resting on the shoulder of his son, so clearly this is how it's going to be. He has made provision, if the unthinkable should happen, and Edward died, provision has been made for the girls. But the irony is that his true heir obviously is not his son, It's his daughter Elizabeth who stands there on the right, who at this point, you know, nobody really thinks uh, she's going to ever come to the throne. And yet she does. And her long reign will provide all the peace and stability that England needs, the arts will flourish. We'll see the the religious settlement that she provides to the Church of England, the defeat of the Spanish Armada and this golden age that Elizabeth will um, uh, reign over. Um, A brilliant, brilliant, he couldn't have wanted a better heir and successor um, than his daughter Elizabeth. And he he just doesn't know it at this time. It's a tragedy, isn't
0: it? (laughs) I love the description. So we've seen possibly Henry captured as a small boy in all his innocence without an agenda a kind of potentially a very authentic fun-loving mischievous young boy and then we see the you've described the art of the adult king where it's all about glory and aggrandizement and Um, comparison of himself to these religious paintings and icons and stories and then finally there Siobhan you've talked to us about towards the end of his life maybe when Henry was becoming more reflective about what happens next moving from focusing on storytelling about glory to storytelling about stability Uh, so I think that's a lovely narrative that we see through the art so thank you so much for explaining that to us. Well, thank you for inviting us because mm. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed. You're most welcome. But before we go, we must find, you must tell us, your is your book out now? Can people buy it now? When when was it published and where do they go to get a, co- a copy? Soon, not long now. Um, in April, is it the
1: 15th, Siobhan, or 16th? Yeah, the 15th. The 15th of April. Um, you can buy it, you can pre-order through Amazon. Um. Well, I hope enjoy it. I hope the the readers enjoy it as much as we've enjoyed writing it. Let's put it that way. We've had a lovely time. It's been a real pleasure to write it. And and also
2: we hope that we will inspire people to come to Hampton Court Palace and, and see all these wonderful treasures in reality. I'm sure as soon as
0: we all can, we'll be beating a (laughs) path as as (laughs) possible. I know I will be. That's for sure. Let me in. Let me in. Um, So wonderful. Thank you again for that. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with your book. And I look forward to maybe speaking to you again and following you for your next adventure, which I'm very curious about. Do we get any clues about that, by the way, about the book you're writing or is it top secret? Obviously, yes. We're having another good time writing this one
1: on a similar theme, similar format, but Elizabeth I. Ah. So the difference being it's mainly
0: portraits. Ah, lovely. And, and to those... see
1: the Queen again through different areas of her life. Yes, it's, um, it's, it's great. I love it.
0: So we might be doing a round two in a year or so. so. Yeah, (laughs) Plenty to talk about with Elizabeth and portraits, I'm sure. No shortage of uh, material there. Well, again, thank you so much, ladies. And I'll look forward to our next conversation.
2: Thank you. you. It's lovely to see you again.
0: Psst. Before we finish the show, remember you can support my work via my patron programme, where various levels of sponsorship are available starting at just $1 a month. Check out all the details of how to become a patron in the link included with this podcast. Oh, and don't forget, you can be part of my closed Facebook group where fellow time travellers like you hang out with me and each other to share some of our favourite things about visiting the UK. From great Tudor places to visit, to the best way to take your cream tea in an afternoon. From the latest travel news to the traditional Sunday roast. So don't miss out and you can apply to join by clicking on the link in the description. So now it's back to close the show. Well that's a massive thank you from me to both Linda and Siobhan for sharing those stories of Henry VIII as a collector and patron of the arts. And remember that you can see some of those pieces today at Hampton Court Palace, including the tapestries and the picture The Field of Cloth of Gold and the other sister painting that was mentioned, The Embarkation of Dover, both of which are likely to be featured in this year's postponed exhibition at Hampton Court Palace about The Field of Cloth of Gold. So that's something for us all to look forward to. Well, we are coming to the end of this extra special podcast for the month of April. Just before I go, of course, I'd love to say a massive thank you to all my patrons who continue to support my work here at the Tudor Travel Guide and help to keep the show on the road. I have an itinerary of places that I am hoping to get to over the summer. And as COVID restrictions continue to be eased here, it looks like they may well be happening. So keep your fingers crossed because we'll be visiting some really wonderful, interesting, fascinating places which are steeped in Tudor history and I can't wait to share those stories with you. And in the meantime, just one final reminder of my most current project which are the live chats that are currently going on on Clubhouse. Uh, If you want to join Clubhouse and are not already a member, then look out for my posts over the weekend on Instagram and in my private Facebook group, where I will be inviting people to connect with me directly if you are looking for an invite to get on board. But remember, it is iPhone only at the moment. Android will be coming very soon, hopefully in the month of May. Okay, my friends, well, that is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to catching up with you again, actually very soon in the next episode of my Travel Essentials series. So you'll be able to catch up with that in just a week or so's time. Okay, until then, have a great time wherever you are in the world. Lots of love to you. And I look forward to seeing you on the virtual road again soon. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the tudor history and travel show if you've loved the show please take a moment to subscribe like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the tudor love until next time my friends all that remains for me to say is happy time traveling